Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you might see my slide. It doesn't say Christmas gift. It says Christmas guilt. And uh, I wasn't sure what to preach this week. Uh, I think last week was so emotionally taxing on me that I really struggled uh, to come up with something to share today. But as I've visited with people in the community, as I've searched my own heart, as I've prayed, um, I, it's come become clear to me that there's a lot of guilt that people sometimes feel around Christmas. There's guilt that they feel. And, and I guess if you're thinking guilt around Christmas, let me help you tap into maybe what I've felt in the past and, and maybe give voice, give word to maybe what some of you are feeling or have felt, uh, and then help us navigate what to do with that. For me, one of the times that I felt the most guilty uh, in my life was when I went to Tijuana, Mexico. And I went to Tijuana, Mexico. Now, you might be thinking, oh, he felt guilty because he was drinking underage or um, he was partying too much. I felt guilty because I was on a mission trip. And I went on a mission trip, and one of the places we visited was a dump. It was this one of the city uh, landfills. And there in the city landfill, there it's different than our landfill. We have a big fence to keep people out of it and to keep the stuff in it, and uh, we bury it and make it go away. And in Mexico... They don't have a fence around it. It's got a neighborhood that's been built up all around it and in it. And I remember that we went to this city dump in Tijuana. And I remember us um, doing an outreach to children who made their homes in this city dump of Tijuana. And I'm sure it was just one of, of many because Tijuana is an enormous city. I'm sure it was just one of many landfills down there. And we parked our van and we got out and it was like a hundred, but it was a dry heat. So that helped. (laughs) And it was windy. And if you've ever been to Tijuana or anywhere in Mexico when it's hot and windy, you know, one of the things they don't pay for down there is water and irrigation. And so when it gets windy, it blows dust and sand everywhere. And so we're there and it's 100 degrees and I'm sweating and it's we just piled out of a 15 passenger van that probably had 16 or 17 folks in it. And it's already hot and we had the windows rolled up because I don't have scratch and sniff available for you today. And you're glad I don't have scratch and sniff available for you today, because one of the things that is most profound in third world countries is the smell. It's the thing that stays with you. And I remember a clean, as best I could be, American kid jumping out of that 15-passenger van into the dump. Seeing these little kids running up to us. And instantly they want to interact with you. They want to climb on you. They want to talk to you. They want stuff from you. And I remember locking eyes with one little guy. And I remember feeling guilty, feeling guilty because I was, I was fortunate. 
in ways that I had no control over at all. I, I, had, I had advantages that this little guy never could dream of. I had experiences in life that this little guy could never, ever possibly dream of happening. And sometimes we think that people are poor because they're not industrious, they don't work hard, they're not smart enough, they're whatever. And uh, the poverty in Tijuana, at least in the city dump, has nothing to do with smarts, has nothing to do with industriousness, it has nothing to do with anybody's character. It has everything to do with the fact that when the divine lotto, however that works, when those dice were cast, that little guy got Tijuana for his home. And I got Littleton for mine. Had absolutely nothing to do with any abilities we had. I just happened to win the lotto of human history. And he happened to be one of the losers. And I remember feeling guilty. I remember feeling guilty for being an American. I remember feeling guilty for all the stuff that I had. I remember feeling guilty that all I could do was hang out with him for a few hours on a dusty, hot afternoon in Tijuana. I remember thinking I, I should try to get these kids into the van and smuggle them across the border and give them a better life. I remember just feeling utter guilt and not knowing what to do with it, not feeling equipped, not knowing how to process what it was I was seeing. And day in, day out on that trip, guilt haunted me. And it didn't get any better when we came across the border. It actually got worse. Because if you've ever crossed the border in Tijuana between California and the Baja, one thing that is of stark uh, just difference that you'll see is that there's grass in California. There's plants in California. Same exact climate, same exact soil. But in California, they have money to spend watering plants. And in Tijuana, they don't even have enough money to get water to the kids. And I struggled with that. You would think that as soon as we got across, it was like, oh, thank God, we're back. And I felt, thank God, we're back. But I also felt like, Ugh, what do I do? How do I respond? And the further we drove away from the border, the more profound the guilt built up in my heart. And I struggled. I didn't know what to do with what I saw. And then I started reading about poverty and I started reading about what the Christian response should be to these things. And I was only in high school as I'm wrestling through these things or college as I'm wrestling through with these things. And I remember that Jesus said things that had to do with this. And one that Christians always toss it around and we'll look at it here in a moment. But they they toss it around and it, like in order to make us feel better about the problems in the world. One was you will always have the poor with you. And I thought that's a command of his. I thought. 
So don't worry, be happy. I mean, how do we complete that idea? And I remember reading that and wrestling with it and friends telling me that and pastors saying it. And I thought that doesn't get me anywhere. Just because we'll always have them, does that mean I'm just supposed to turn a blind eye to what I saw? There's another little saying, live simply so that others can simply live. And it's kind of pithy. It's easy to remember. Uh, you don't even have to write it down to remember that one. Live simply so that others can simply live. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to live simply. I'm going to really focus on being simple. But in America, to live simply? And it was a little easier when I was in college because back then I didn't even worry about having stuff. You know, I just, I just live simply. And then I got married, and it got a little more complicated. Then we had children, and it got a lot more complicated. And so when you think, live simply so that others can simply live, I think, you know, every time I buy something that I don't need is me spending money that I could send off to Tijuana to help that little boy who touched me so profoundly at the landfill. And then nearly every purchase started haunting me for a a while. You know, man... Really would like to have, oh, but I can't because, and I just, it was miserable. Maybe you've felt that before. <laughs> I know in years past that when I, we've done Advent Conspiracy, I've, I've preached really pretty hard on poverty and the church's response and how we should give and how we should do these things. And this was one of those years I've like, ugh. I don't want to do that. I don't want to beat up myself and I don't want to beat up anybody else. Let's just mention it and pray and trust that God's going to move people's hearts. But even the announcement can be guilt inducing, can't it? The video I showed last week with a little girl who goes down to the neighborhood lake and gets this bottle of dirty water and that's her water for the day. And it can make you feel guilty. I mean, I wouldn't go dream, dream of drinking the water out of stalker without treating it in some way first. I'd do something to do it first. I wouldn't just start drinking it. And even just the mention of it, that there are poor people and you have plenty and you should share, that can induce some guilt in us. There was another time that I felt guilty in life, and it was actually related to the Christmas season. And it was the year that my grandfather's passed away. My grandfather's passed away about a month apart, month and a half apart of each other. And they both passed away in 1997, just shortly after we had learned that we were expecting Sam. So my grandfather's not, never got to be great-grandfathers. They were great, but just not that kind of great. And I remember them uh, dying just a few weeks apart from one another. And we were actually in Fruta, Colorado for my grandpa, for my granddad, Winecoop's funeral uh, near Thanksgiving. We actually celebrated Thanksgiving, I think, at the Motel 6 or whatever was there, or the Super 8 or however that worked. And then just a few weeks later, Christmas. And I remember feeling guilt Guilt because I was moving forward with life after my grandfathers had both passed. And especially at the holidays, you you feel guilt because there's stuff you got to do and there's things that you you feel obligated. And there's just, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. 
in that year, my feelings just weren't following what the culture, what the Christmas lights around town, what, what the specials on TV, none of those things ran, rang true with me that year. And I remember feeling some guilt. Guilt that, you know, I can't just move on and have a happy Christmas, a merry Christmas. I can't just, you know, I, I, need to, I need to feel this. I need to continue to sit in this. I need to continue to feel yucky. Perhaps that's where some of you are today. Perhaps because of what happened a couple weeks ago in town uh, where there was just a profound heaviness and weight of darkness on us with death and tragic deaths at that. And, And then you drive around town and the lights just aren't quite as twinkly as they usually are. And the Christmas carols don't quite just sing and ring as true as they usually do. And maybe you're not even focusing on those losses of our community. Maybe you're focusing on a personal loss. Maybe bad news that you received this past month or this past year in regards to a doctor visit or to a visit with an employer or a visit with a family member. Or maybe uh, somebody that you love won't be around this Christmas. I mean, there's all sorts of losses that we experience in life. And it's easy to feel guilt. It's easy to feel guilt because we're moving on. It's easy to feel guilt because we, sh- we, we, we bear, perhaps, we think some responsibility for what has happened. And it's easy to, to feel stuck, to feel guilty. I remember when I first got word of Colton's passing, and my first thought was, I shouldn't have kept I shouldn't have quit meeting with him and his brother. After their father committed suicide, I met with them regularly. And that in the course of time and busyness and schedules and them growing up and everything else, we just quit meeting. And there's times in life that we look and we think, I should have, I could have, I wish I would have, and guilt can pile up on us. And then you turn to the Bible and you hope to get some answers there, right? And then you you read about Jesus and he came to heal people and save people and fix problems and release the poor from poverty and release the prisoner and all these sorts of things. And you you think, boy, if I'm Christ-like, that's all stuff that I should be doing because Jesus says I'm Christ-like and therefore those are the things that I should be doing. And yet I'm horrible at it just as I shared because to live simply so others can simply live is rather complicated. And then, as I kept thinking and praying and meditating on this, and this has not been just this week, but this has been kind of going on for years in my life. There's a story in Mark 15, 14 that, that helped me. It's actually the story where it gives us those words, the poor you'll always have with you. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Mark 14, verse 3 says this. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, (laughs) a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. 
made of pure nard. I guess that's good. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. You know, one of the things that catches me in this story is that I can relate to the folks who rebuke the lady. I mean, especially when I conjure up the picture in my mind of the dump in Tijuana and the children there. I mean, it's really easy for me to, to, to go, yeah, why the waste? Why the extravagant waste? I mean, this is different waste than like the waste on that TV show, Home Improvement, right? Where they would go and they'd tear down your home. Some of those homes need to be torn down. I mean, this was like, this is something that didn't need to be done. This is extravagant waste, not just, you know, sort of necessary waste. One thing I've always learned is that if I disagree with Jesus, I'm probably wrong. How does he respond? Leave her alone, said Jesus. (laughs) You know, some of you came just for those words. There's some folks you need to leave alone. That was free. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful. Hear his language. She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, when I read that verse in its context. Because context is super, super important. Context is king. That's what they taught me at my seminary. When I read that verse in its context, I didn't remember the context. I didn't remember that Jesus said this right after a year's worth of wages of perfume was poured on his body. I didn't remember that he said this in response to people criticizing a woman who was extravagant in her treatment of Christ. And one of the things that jumped out at me with this passage is, I mean, Jesus, wherever he goes, he proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what does he mean by that? The kingdom of heaven is near because I'm the king and I'm here. So it's near. I might have said that too quickly for some of you, but you'll get it. Wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom's going. Wherever the king is, there's the kingdom. And so whatever Jesus is doing is kingdom business. It's not like he all of a sudden decides, you know what, right now I'm not going to act like the king. I'm just going to recline at this table. Don't you love how you picture Jesus reclining? (laughs) Like after Thanksgiving, you know, oh man, uh, that's reclining right there, right? 
After dinner, Jesus is reclining at the table. How could Jesus, the son of God, who's here to save the world, have time to recline? (laughs) He's reclining. He's enjoyed a, a good meal. He's enjoying company of people. And then this woman does this extravagant, wasteful thing. And people like me throw stones. And people like me criticize. And people like me say, this is such a waste. Don't you feel guilty? And as I've read it in its context, I realize that this is kingdom work. This is the king being the king. To celebrate is kingdom work. To enjoy is kingdom work. I started feeling a little less guilty about being an American winning the lotto of human history. See that line where he says, the poor you will always have with you. That's usually where we stop it. You'll always have the poor with you. So therefore, eh, what a bummer. But if you read it, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want. You see, the problem is we don't always want to. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to speak about me, not about you. Problem is I don't always want to. Problem is that kid in Tijuana at the dump, he's not always on my radar. He's not always in front of me. He's not always, you know, the smell and the stench. It's not always here because race smells pretty good unless there's a cattle cell in town. And then it just smells like money, right? I mean, our lives are just so insulated and isolated from poverty for the most part that we just don't feel a want to. It's not that Jesus is saying, you'll have them all the time, so don't worry about them and let them take care of themselves. You'll have them always. So do something about it. And then as I read that in context, some guilt wells up in me. Well, I don't always do it. What do I do? And that's where another verse that Paul wrote to a young pastor helps me out. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, Verse 17 and 18, it says, command those who are rich. And by the way, every single one of us is rich. Now, the problem is we don't think of ourselves as rich because we're busy comparing ourselves to Donald Trump. We're comparing ourselves to Peyton Manning. We're comparing ourselves to really crazy wealthy people. But when I compare myself to the kid in Tijuana, Mexico... When I compare myself to the vast majority of the 7 billion people on planet Earth. Then I go, oh, yeah, I'm rich. And this is remember that first word. That's an important word there. Command. This is the Apostle Paul speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is commanding this to be done by pastors because that's what Timothy is. So the Holy Spirit is commanding a pastor. That's me to. Command those who are rich, that's you and me, 
in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. You know, I can agree with this part of the statement. I like this part. I can totally agree with this. Don't put your hope in wealth. Uh, Don't be arrogant about being wealthy, which is so uncertain. Yep, it's uncertain. I mean, just look at 2008. (laughs) Some of you had stocks. Some of you had mutual funds and you lost some money. And you were certain you wouldn't. But you certainly did. Because it's uncertain. It certainly is. <laughs> but to put their hope in God. Yeah, I like that part. Who richly provides us with everything for our. And that last word is so important. Enjoyment. If you've ever felt guilty. You can't feel joy at the same time. If you've ever felt guilt, you can't experience things for your own enjoyment. And I read this verse in the next one in a minute that we'll read here. When I read this verse and I pondered that word that God provides everything for our enjoyment. I mean, if that's your viewpoint of these kinds of things, then that just relieves all sorts of Christmas guilt. That just just lifts that off of you. At least it did for me. Because I was like, you know what? It's just all these flavors. God gave me taste buds. And then... Not only did he give you taste buds, he gave you stuff that tastes good. And then he gave you a holiday where you could take the day off and cook things, smell things. And it's all for your enjoyment. And then he gave you resources so you could run to the store and you could look at the lights and you could sit on Santa's lap if you want. And you could experience all of the lights at your house or at the church or wherever else. And he gave you eyeballs that had the ability to see those things and they attach to your brain and they process that stuff. And then you go, wow, that's pretty. It was all for your enjoyment. We walked into somebody's home. And it smelled like Christmas. You know that smelling? That smelling? That smell? <laughs> that was like a bush. <laughs> Strategery. Um, you know that smell that you have at Christmas? Is you just walk in and you're like, yeah, Christmas. That's for our enjoyment. That's why we like to make our house smell like that. And so all these things are for our enjoyment. And then you keep reading and it says... In verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And did you say, did you see it doesn't say command them to sell everything and give it to the poor, command them to quit it, just stop being rich, knock it off, quit your job, go grovel in the street, get one of those signs, will not work for food because... I'm not supposed to be wealthy, so therefore. He doesn't say that you shouldn't be rich. It says says nothing about commanding them in regards to whether they're rich or not. It says if they're rich, command them this way. And the way that they're supposed to be commanded is do good. Be ready to share. And I love that every single time the Apostle Paul talks about these things, he doesn't give a percentage. He doesn't even reiterate the 
the Hebrew practice in the Old Testament of the tithe. He always says, be generous. You see, for some of us to give a tenth is far from generous. For some of us to give a tenth is exceedingly generous. Why? Because God has, for whatever reason, given all of us different abilities and different income levels and all this kind of stuff. And really what he wants you to do, what his plan for you is to talk to him about it. To find out what he wants you to do. And then do it. To trust that he will speak to you, that he will put on your heart what it is you, a rich person, what it is me, a rich person, should do with my stuff. And when I started to put these things together, the guilt dissipated. The guilt lifted. It went away because all of a sudden I realized, you know what? I'm not responsible for every single poor person in the world. I'm not even responsible for the poor kid in the Tijuana dump that I met that day. I was responsible that day to do good as best as I could with what God had given me at that moment of interaction with him. And I was responsible when I went home to trust that God would tell me what I could continue to do with the poor to help them. And he has. That was over 20 years ago. And now our church regularly gives away, you know, in fact, it came up at our last uh, meeting. We, we met uh, the, the board and the, uh, the elders and the building committee. We had a meeting with uh, Adam, the architect, that's his name. Um, and we're talking about our new building and we had this meeting. And, and one of the things that was mentioned was when we decided to bring Steve on by ourselves without the Presbyterian church helping pay for him, we had a budget of $64,000. And we stretched and we prayed and we freaked out. Probably more freaking out than praying. But they sometimes go hand in hand. And God blessed us. And one of the elders mentioned, and we probably give close to $64,000 away now, a year. That's because rich people are doing good. Rich people are being generous and they're sharing. Rich people aren't sitting around feeling guilty for being rich. But they are doing good as God leads them to do good. The other part of this equation, my grandpa's death um, right before Christmas. What, what do I do with that? How do, how do you move forward when you've got Christmas and lights and your feelings and all this don't jive with the most wonderful time of the year? And what do you do when there's friends of yours in our community who are grieving in a profound way and you almost feel like as you drive by their house with, you know, it's the most wonderful time. And then you feel like, oh, I got to turn this down because I'm going by their house and I hate to make them feel, you know, what do you do? You bring light into dark. You celebrate the kingdom because we live in a war zone. And right now, the prince of darkness rules this world. 
That's what the scriptures tell us. The prince of darkness, the evil one, he rules this world. But when Jesus was born, it was like a special ops mission had begun where Jesus shot into the world and light started to pierce the darkness. And whenever he went, he brought celebration and joy and healing and life. And you and I are imagers of him. We are to take him wherever we go. And wherever we go, the kingdom goes. And as we go, light goes. And joy goes. So take hold of that. And take it with you. And obviously not in some weird, strange, shoehorn Jesus and everything kind of way. And obviously not in some strange, mean, nasty, you know, twisted. I don't know what else to say. So all things work together for good for those who, you know, there are times that words are very shallow. But your presence, your joyful countenance, your presence and hugs and prayers and joy is powerful. It's meant to be. It's meant to be. It is the most powerful thing the church has at its disposal. Is the joy that Christ brings into our hearts. Because it is something that the world doesn't have and it doesn't understand. Let go of any Christmas guilt you've got. Let it go. Give it to Christ. Let him take that and replace it with true joy. With light. With gladness in your hearts. May you have a joyous Christmas season. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is not a stick in the mud. And he likes a good meal. He likes to recline. He likes to tell a tale. He likes things that smell good. And where he went, party went. Where he went, joy went. Where he went, healing went. Thank you that for each of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Thank you that each one of us who have decided to follow Jesus Wherever we go, the kingdom goes because the king goes with us. And I pray that we would take joy into this dark world, that we would take light into this war-torn world. And just our presence would be enough. And the presence of Christ in us would be enough to change this world. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace and great joy. Amen.